Good evening, everybody. Thanks very much for coming out on a rather wet evening. Um, uh, I should explain who I am, sorry. My, I'm, my name is Charlie Beckett. I'm director of POLIS, which is the uh, journalism and society think tank here at the London School of Economics. And we're also partnered with the journalism department at the London College of Communication, uh, which is part of University Arts of London. Um, we're very pleased that you've come tonight for what we think is a very important issue. It's something we've been debating at POLIS uh, in seminars and in lectures throughout the last year, and it's every time we do so, something else uh, raises its head and, and shifts the terms of the debate. Uh, I should add that we're also continuing the debate with Ed Richards, who's the boss of Ofcom, the broadcasting regulator. He's coming to speak here on November the 21st. Um, the subject for tonight, which is a rather long question, the future of impartiality, is the public service ethos doomed? Um, in a way, it's a very grand question, but it's also uh, a very practical question about the kind of uh, journalism that we produce in this country and indeed beyond. Um, and it's a very shifting question. In, uh, that as we speak, the ground is, is moving and the media landscape, to, to pursue that metaphor, is changing as well. Uh, it's partly to do with economics, it's partly to do with politics, and of course it's partly to do with technology. But at the heart of it, I think, is uh, a simple question, which is about trust. Uh, and I feel that trust in a number of institutions, and particularly perhaps the media, is currently in short supply. And of course, uh, as a journalist, as, as journalists, if we lose uh, public trust, then we lose public interest. And uh, that's bad for journalism, but it's also bad for uh, society as a whole. Um, so much depends on us all getting uh, good information that we can rely on, but also uh, a proper space for debate that we think is held on um, trustworthy terms. Generally, I'd say that public service journalism in this country over the last 50 years has, has been a, a social good. It's something that we're very proud of. But as I say, it is threatened. It is subject to tremendous scrutiny. And that's why it's a very good time for us to, to gather, to have this conversation, not just uh, amongst journalists, but with and amongst the public as well. Um, I'm very pleased we managed to get three diverse um, experts, as it were, practitioners and commentators on this. I'm also delighted that Roger Bolton has uh, agreed to step in at very short notice to replace... Eleanor Goodman. Mm -hmm. uh, in many ways, Roger uh, reminds us that uh, by his own career that this is not entirely a new issue, um, that Roger himself has been uh, uh, subject to debate, I think, over impartiality if we go back to Roger's time at Thames TV. Um, but he is now recognised very much as somebody who's uh, been at the heart of the public uh, scrutiny of journalists. So thanks very much for the BBC College of Journalism which is the body that works uh, within the BBC to try and encourage debate and raise standards within the BBC and is very much now looking to engage with the public itself. So it's, hmm. it's wonderful to have, have them as a partner uh, with POLIS tonight. But I'll hand over to Roger, who will uh, take us forward for the evening. Thanks very much. Thanks so much, Charlie, for that totally impartial introduction. Um, this is a very complicated notion, isn't it? It's very long. Uh, statement here. What is the future of impartiality in British broadcasting? Is the public service ethos doomed? So we thought we'd divide it into mm. two. 
between the first half, or maybe the first two thirds, talk about impartiality and its future, and then towards the end, examine the public service ethos in more detail. And uh, to do so, we have three, I think, fascinating people here on the panel. First to my left, Richard D. North, um, iconoclast extraordinaire, but here perhaps because he wrote Scrap the BBC, 10 years to set broadcasting free. So you know where he's coming from. Uh, next in the middle is Emily Bell, who is, I can't believe this is her title, but I think it is, I'll read it out, Director of Digital Content, News and Media, Guardian. Is that right? Um, I think it's di Director of Digital Content for Guardian News and Media, but you're very close. Very okay. <laughs> close. And uh, he used to be an excellent editor, I think, of the way Media Guardian. And on the far left is, um, only in terms of his position this evening, of course, is Adam Davis, BBC Economics editor and star of Dragon's Den, speaking the BBC and Adam have asked me to say, in a personal capacity. He and I, in this sense, are tonight are both castrati. <coughs> Nothing we say must be regarded as representing anything other than, certainly in his case, his views. We're non-castrati in that sense. Non-castrati uh, in that sense, sense, yes. Mark Damazet <coughs> calls himself a castrato, by the way, which is quite interesting. <laughs> now, those, I hope anyway, to, um, to at least make you not think too much about the absence of Eleanor Goodman. And uh, for those of the long memory, my ambition is to be tonight the um, equivalent of David Fairclough as Liverpool's super sub. Right, you need a very long memory for that to know that. Let's get on then. What we're going to do, we're going to talk about impartiality. First, each of the panelists is going to talk for five minutes. I might have them ask them an odd question after that, and then we're going to come to you and try and develop the ideas. And then, as I say, two-thirds of the way through, let's look at the public service ethos. Uh, and I thought before we began, we might um, ask them to define impartiality, but that take too long, so I hope mm. that they will do so in the context of what they're saying. So first up, four or five minutes, Richard D. North. Uh, I hate defining things. Let's, if we have a quick rattle through it. My feeling is, of course, that impartiality is a beautiful idea. Um, I wouldn't like to be in front of a judge who wasn't impartial. Um, but I think it's a completely useless idea for journalists. Um, that's a rather strong thing to say. Um, I, I do want to stress that I'm in love with um, fair-mindedness, I'm in love with the quest for truthfulness. I'm in love with robust debate. I'm not in love with impartiality as something journalists should worry about. And I'm especially concerned to think that the BBC should in some sense feel that it is justified its peculiar position in the state, its peculiar position in terms of its sponsorship, by virtue of its being impartial. It seems a, an odd idea. And I think the quickest way into seeing how odd it is is not to tie oneself in knots about what impartiality is or is not or how to achieve it, but to note that the British print media is now and has always been and shows every sign of continuing to be a quite extraordinarily beautiful animal in no need of reform, virtually incapable of being improved upon. It is simply a wonderful beast. Of course, it's a varied beast. It's an argumentative beast. It's a beast with flaws. But taken in the round, if you wake up one morning and you can read and you go out amongst a British bookstore, you have got the world at your fingertips. And the beauty of what the British print media has always achieved, is achieving, and will go on achieving, 
has absolutely nothing to do with impartiality since at no point is anybody in the print media required to be impartial. So if you say, here is a beautiful thing, the British print media, and it doesn't bother with impartiality, and then you look at the BBC, which in my view is a deeply flawed organisation, whether you're looking at news or current affairs or any other aspect of it, of its so-called serious output, and you see that it is, hang on, lumbered with only one distinctive characteristic, namely the requirement to be impartial. Now, two things I think are worth saying about what happens to a body of journalists when they're lumbered with the absurdity of being impartial. And they're curiously opposed things. One is that they become authoritative. They sort of sense that somehow what they do because it's impartial must in some sense be rather special, as though somehow a truth uttered by the BBC or a fact uttered by the BBC is more true than that same fact uttered by the Guardian, Telegraph, FT, Fox, Sky, Reuters, PA, none of which, so far as I know, make a fetish of impartiality. So this business of being burdened with some sort of heaven-sent authoritativeness is one of the things that afflicts the BBC. But the other thing which afflicts it is that its lively journalists and its lively editors find themselves neutered. And because they are lively and animated people, they then think, well, we must adopt something. We must do something. And what they do is they become perennially dissident and chippy and aggressive. And therefore you see the phenomenon whereby because Paxman or Humphreys can't utter a thing called an opinion, all they can do to put it in the demotic, well, let's not be demotic because this is going on the web, and it's a, what they can, all they can do is be equally unpleasant to everybody. And if you then consider what the Bishop of York, the Archbishop of York, once said, and I think it was very sound, which was the culture of contempt creeps in. And it's a default position. You've got attack dogs who aren't allowed to have opinions. All they can do is attack everybody equally. The peculiarity of that is that it, for instance, means that you know you're safe sneering at anybody who's in authority. But it isn't clever. You also know you're safe if you sneer at anybody in politics at all, providing you sneer with equal vehemence at both sides, which isn't very useful to the process of getting any dignity going about politics. But there's a further problem, that if you are condemned to impartiality, you can't support anything. You can't be positive about anything. I've said you're condemned to be negative but you're condemned to that curiously neutered position in which you can't find anything to say positive and say, this I endorse, because that would be partiality. And yet it's in who you support when you read, say, The Telegraph, or you read somebody partial. You, they live and die, not by some lofty appearance of indifference, which is easily made grand but by the much more testable problem of having to come out and say what they like. And that's where you get a bit of history going and you start being able to judge people. Now, that's my five minutes. And I hope it's complete-ish. Just one thing, Richard, on it. You talk about impartiality, you define impartiality, but mm. um, when speaking you tend to talk about 
partiality and partiality in terms of opinion. Would you accept it's possible to be impartial in the establishing of and the presentation of facts where facts can be established? But what, yes, but what's beautiful about that is that when you pick up the Telegraph or the Guardian, you know that these are partial newspapers, but you know also that you can trust their fact equally. The fact that the opinion columns, the general slant of either paper appalls you according to taste doesn't mean that you don't accord both the understanding that they're great newspapers that understand that a fact is a live-or-die thing you do your best to ascertain. You don't need some lofty goal of impartiality. You're simply in love with serving your readers who are demanding and expect nothing less of you than an honest quest for truthfulness. And so you think that the respect for the facts shown by the Daily Mail or the Sun is the same as the respect for the facts shown by the BBC? Uh, if you're then saying that in the gutter press, let's say, truth is not to be found, I didn't say that every word in every newspaper is true. I said that it doesn't... Uh, what I should have said is that actually an awful lot of it is, and only complete idiots are for long deceived or for long get away with talking nonsense anywhere in the British press because it all comes out in the wash. Look at it this way. If you subtract it... I, sorry, look at it this way. I do agree that you get a truthfulness in the British press by cross-checking and allowing a process, as it were, in the marketplace of the competition within these organs. And that works. And it is a folly and deception to believe, rather like central planning is a folly and deception, to believe that instead of that dynamic of testing in the marketplace, as it were, of competition of truths and views, that you can establish something that can both be impartial and interesting. Uh, can we turn now, thanks very much indeed, to Emily Bell, who is very much in the market and amongst the competition, for yes. her view about impartiality. Um, yeah, uh, impartiality, I'm not going to try and define it, because I tried to define something the other day, um, and I did it on a podcast, and I got it wrong. Um, but the great thing about the web and um, the, is that it's one great big rights reply. Uh, in fact, that's sort of, I wanted to kick off with a, a very small anecdote about going. I was lucky enough to go to uh, the European Parliament to meet with a senior commissioner who operates in the area of uh, broadcasting policy, um, which was every bit as fascinating as it sounds. Uh, and it was really about whether or not... Um, a piece of legislation called the Television Without, Television Without Frontiers, which sort of gave me a mental image of lots of men in sort of oversized suits knocking each other over. Um, whether that you're all too young, uh, um, gave, gave this impression of, sort of Television Without Frontiers. Should we be extending uh, the regulation, which is actually imposed on broadcasters at the moment, for impartiality? Because actually, I think there's a slight, kind of old, old, slightly wiki something that Richard says, which is it's my understanding that on certainly analog news services, they all have a duty mm. to be mm. impartial mm. and unbiased. Mm. So actually, it mm. is true of mm. um, ITN mm. and it's true Absolutely. of Sky as well. Mm. Um, though I do remember an ITC report actually into Fox News, which started uh, a service on the Sky Transponder, and it came back and said, no, Fox News is impartial. 
Um, make of that what you will. Uh, anyway, so I was in the senior commissioners meeting with some um, European newspaper editors and it was all about uh, whether or not, what about the internet uh, and shouldn't we be regulating the internet because obviously the thing about regulators is they like to regulate stuff um, and I was saying I think it's a really bad idea. I really don't want to be regulated um, by even by lovely Ed Richards, let alone Europe. Uh, and the commissioner said, but, you know, what about right to reply? What about impartiality? What about all these things that are in place around broadcasting? Uh, how can we make sure that this happens on the web? And I said, have you actually ever used the internet? Um, you know, there is, if, if you thought that you could get away with the kind of, um, I think, sort of e economy with the truth, uh, and this is where I slightly depart from, from, from Richard, whilst I would uh, admire the, the beauty of the British press on a daily basis, I'm not sure that uh, their kind of use of facts is always as robust as, as he would have us believe. Uh, and anyone who's been following, um, has had the misfortune to follow the Madeleine Cam case uh, would probably sort of agree with me. Uh, and I said, have you ever used the internet? The internet is just one great big, you know, right, right of reply. Not just right of reply, but corrective. Um, corrective, and uh, it's a check and a balance. You know, it's sort of you can get so many multiple views of, of, of one incident uh, in so many ways, uh, and you can have your opinion on that. And if you try and deceive your audience or, or if, you, if you write rubbish or if you take money from a sponsor and then pretend that you're writing in kind of an impartial way, you will be found out because there are a lot of people, you know, in their pyjamas or in their bedrooms actually who are out to get you or out to prove that what you're saying is, 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 is wrong or flawed in some way. Um, so it's quite interesting because I think that actually, you know, this is where Richard is right, that when you have... Uh, it's all about bandwidth, you know, impartiality is all about bandwidth, stupid, which is at the moment, uh, why is it important that the BBC is impartial? And I think it is important that it's impartial because it takes money off all of us. Um, it doesn't think it's taking money off me. I keep getting kind of men coming around in detective vans, but I have paid my licence fee. I checked. Um, it takes money off all of us, and we all have different opinions about things. And so actually kind of what, what keeps, if you like, what keeps the BBC on the straight and narrow is this kind of lofty idea. I don't think there's anything wrong with lofty ideas or striving for the, for, for the unattainable. I think that um, it's actually jolly, a jolly good way uh, to make sure that um, everybody is served. It may bland out your product, and that's absolutely true, but I don't think it's... I don't think it's uh, every time I see uh, an item on the 10 o'clock news which has music playing underneath it, it actually makes my teeth fall out with irritation because I think, you know, everything that you add to something uh, which, if you'd like, sort of adds emotion or, 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 or point of view uh, to a piece, um, unless it's kind of, you know, the heavily authored work of a, a, an individual journalist, it, it really sort of, it, it, it grates slightly because actually what you want to know are the facts. But then, you know, that's my sort of very kind of, you know, European-centric, middle-class view of the BBC, and it's probably uh, completely um, skewed by the fact that uh, the BBC is uh, television made by people like me, for people like me, um, and that actually, you know, the case is that, as we all know, every time you compile a news list, you are being partial, because you're saying these are the really important issues. Um, I think on the web there's something very interesting that's happening now, which is, uh, you're moving towards an era where you might even have sort of the deskless newsroom. I don't say this within the confines of the Guardian. If any of you know any Guardian journalists, I'd be pleased if you didn't repeat uh, to them the idea of the editorless uh, newspaper. 
but just this idea that if you are a if you are transparent in your reporting, you will build trust. If you're authentic with your facts uh, and accountable, you will build trust. Uh, and if you engage with your audience, your journalism will improve. So if you imagine, you know, a specialist journalist who is able to engage on a daily basis with an audience who is interested, engaged and expert, uh, then would they not be better at ordering what are the important stories of the day around a certain subject than somebody who's actually a generalist who says, well, I think that these five things, I think the iPhone's really fascinating, but I'm not that interested in Google and privacy. Well, you know... I know one is much more important than the other, but I know which one's going to get more coverage on mainstream bulletins, etc. So, um, you know, is, is, is impartiality, uh, has impartiality been important in the past? Yes, it has, because I think that, you know, somebody, you have to have something to, to, to keep uh, broadcasters honest in, in, in an area of limited bandwidth. When you have unlimited bandwidth, uh, what's the currency of impartiality? Well, I think that's... That's a, very that's a very, very interesting question because I don't think that uh, we quite know yet. What we do know is that um, uh, it is much harder to, if you like, uh, it's, it's, at the moment it is much harder for single organisations to, um, to dominate the landscape. But if, for instance, Google, for instance, if Google were to impose kind of limits on access to Google News, what would we think about that? So maybe kind of my initial position, which is I absolutely don't want to be regulated and I don't think partiality or, 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 or freedom to access is, is that important. Perhaps that's changing. Um, I'm sorry, I'm sounding like a very sort of woolly liberal here, but uh, I think this is, the ground, this is the shifting ground that we're standing on at the moment, that there are sort of much, much bigger issues, I believe, than impartiality of the BBC. Uh, but I think sort of when you start to examine impartiality and what's happening to it in, a, in, in an unlimited bandwidth world, you get into some extremely sort of choppy water quite quickly. Emily, thanks very much. Um, Kato Devon-Davis, now, uh, these first two speakers have been most reluctant to define impartiality. I will get there a little bit. I'll, I'll run through it. The yeah, but, when you got, but when you joined the BBC from the outside, at a relatively mature age, if I may say so, compared to some, were you told, this is why we're different, this is what no. impartiality is? No. I have to I actually confess, I, I get a bit depressed about impartiality. Um, I get depressed because I actually really fundamentally, intellectually agree with a lot of what Richard said. And I would listen to what he said, and I would take it extremely seriously, because I think he has articulated a very important case. Um, I, like Richard, get very irritated when I listen or watch quite a lot of the BBC's news and current affairs output, and I think irritation is probably what motivated uh, Richard, and I think it's probably much the same irritation that I feel. Um, my difference with Richard is I get equally irritated when I read the lovely, beautiful British press. I mean, I just find I tear my hair out sometimes, but I, I know where he's coming from, and I think he... I think, intellectually, I think he's right. Instinctively... I feel there's something in impartiality and I think it has a future and I think it's good and that sort of cognitive dissonance of having a sort of instinct that goes one way and a, uh, an intellect that takes you the other way is very uncomfortable so all I'm going to do in these opening remarks is share my pain uh, on the subject with you um, but I will for the sake of debate and for the sake of where I am anyway I will tell you that I slightly more trust my instinct than I do my intellect uh, just because I and distrust instincts rather than intellect. But let me give you some reflections. I think an awful lot has been said and I, uh, that, I, that I agree with, so I'll just add my, my sort of look at the issue. There are good reasons for attacking the notion of impartiality and the high-mindedness of the BBC on this issue. 
Firstly, it isn't possible. Both speakers have, I think, uh, pointed this out. You have to, in framing a running order, in framing a fact that you select out of other facts, you're making a value judgment, and you can't just report facts. You have to keep coming back to judgments, and that implies some set of values which are motivating or driving your judgments. Peter Jay, my predecessor, was brilliant at articulating this. He said, if you hear commenters from any facts are sacred, you know, total nonsense. Facts are just scattered all over the place. There are billions of them. The comment of how you select the facts, put them together, shape them, narr narrate them, is, is the value of uh, journalism, and value judgments are based in that. So the first reason for attacking impartiality is that it's completely impossible, but completely uh, complete nonsense. The second reason for attacking impartiality is that the BBC demonstrate uh, to some extent that it's very difficult by exhibiting certain biases of its own. I actually don't agree so much with the general criticism that we're all left-wing pinkos. Um, I think there are recruitment issues. Um, I think they're pretty clearly recruitment issues, and I think there are more Guardian readers than Telegraph readers among the people I mix with at the BBC. I've no idea uh, generally, but I, I suspect, I would not be at all surprised if there were more Guardian readers than others. I don't think it's quite that simple, because I think the Guardian readers at the BBC are very aware of their duties, not to be Guardian-esque in their, in their values. But I do think the BBC has a relatively, all organisations, all media organisations, find sort of, you know, they've got F1 to F12 keys on their, um, on their keyboards, and when they see a story, they tend to view it through a certain prism, uh, you know, F1 key, business, profits, uh, are they ripping us off? And it's, it's not because they've been brought up with those values, and if they were brought up with those values, they would know that they should leave them behind at the front door, it's that there's a kind of a lack of imagination in the way to attack stories, so people often revert to the cliches, and so you might end up with a set of stories that are kind of slightly more biased one way or the other. But I think it is a problem that the BBC has both, you know, certain value judgments, and I think it's, uh, you know, the BBC is attacked for that, and if people don't think we're partial, if people don't think we're impartial, then clearly there's a bit of a problem about saying we're, we justify ourselves through impartiality. So that depresses me. Uh, another intellectual reason that sort of depresses me on this and makes me lose faith in the, the, impar the, the impartiality issue is the one hinted at uh, here. I think it's possible there's no demand for it. I mean, what I exhibit about the newspapers is that they engage with their readers by not being impartial, <coughs> by giving them, the readers what the readers want, which is their worldview and their interpretation of events with their worldview, and they do it wonderfully, and they, you know, they do it very well. In a monopoly market, in a kind of, if you have one newspaper or one television uh, station, as in fact in, in some American cities you have one dominant newspaper, and it tends to adopt a very relatively impartial mid-market kind of view. When it was just the BBC, I think it makes sense for it to be pretty impartial. I think it makes more sense for the Evening Standard to be more impartial than the Daily Mail, because the Evening Standard has a slightly more monopoly position in the evening than the Daily Mail has in the morning. And I, I, I do wonder, as we get to the sort of limits of bandwidth removing, I do wonder whether there will be any demand for impartial broadcasting. So for all these reasons, I feel sort of a little bit nervous and a bit sceptical and a bit worried about the future of, uh, of impartiality, and I kind of buy what I'm hearing uh, to, my, to my right. 
why do I, why am I instinctively in favour of it? Well, it's like, I really do think that what we do at the BBC is a little bit different to what the Daily Mail does. Like Richard, I don't think it's better than what the Daily Mail does. I think it's different to what the Daily Mail does. And when I attack a story, I do it very differently to the Daily Mail. Um, let me define what I think I do that the Daily Mail wouldn't necessarily do. They would do some of these, but not all of them. Essentially, I adopt a set of values that are fairly close to the centre of gravity of the UK public. Secondly, I give due weight to extreme views, and I feel I need to give due weight to extreme views. Greens at the far end of the green spectrum, uh, people who don't like foreigners. I mean, these are views that I do feel I need to give weight to and take into account in what I say and what I do. They're licensed pairs too. Um, where there's a disagreement or a fissure in the centre of gravity of British politics, like between the Labour Party and the Tory Party, I feel my duty is to give fair weight to equal sides of the argument. Even if I didn't feel my reporting was going to be beneficial to one side or other of the argument, and often it isn't, often it's annoying to one side or the argument, I would like them to feel I had at least been fair to their side of the argument. I don't think the Daily Mail would take that view. I think it is okay within the constraints of impartiality to take strong views on whimsical issues. I don't feel any problem about taking a strong view on a kind of funny issue that nobody, has, nobody else has a view on. You know. um, I think it's impartial to give more weight to expert and scientific opinion than it is to the casual rantings of people in the pub who don't know what they're talking about. I don't think, I think that's absolutely right, impartiality, part of impartiality. The Daily Mail doesn't necessarily take that view. Um, and I think it is right at the BBC, and we would do this more than the Daily Mail, where we veer away from these other where we break the rules that I've just outlined, I think it would be right for us to somehow subtly or less than subtly signal to the audience that's what we're doing. I do sometimes give opinions. I try when I give an opinion to make pretty damn clear this is a personal view, not the weight of, the, the, mm. the, the weight of economic opinion. I try and say, say this stuff. So that's what I think we do that they don't do, and I think it's worth something. I also terribly you fear... just want to make a okay, so just okay. want to I, I fear the emotional impact that TV can have that if allied with political manipulation or desire to manipulate could be incredibly more powerful than, any, uh, than what you see in the newspapers. So I sort of have an instinctive fear of the power of television. So if you ask where I am on this, it's that I, I sympathise a lot with where Richard is, but I think impartiality as a public good quality, I think it to some extent is different to what the newspapers do. At the moment, with limited bandwidth, I think it has a clear role uh, because it would be dreadful with the power of the BBC or ITV or even Sky to just say, look, the shackles are off, do what you want. I think it would be quite disastrous. Um, and I think it's... Uh, I essentially, I think it has a role for quite a long time to come. Uh, you, you, you know, as a, as a sort of... as a counter and having some market position for which there's some demand uh, for quite a few years. Evan, I was slightly confused at the beginning because it seemed to me that you were saying impartiality is impossible. Well, being wholly good is impossible, but we try and get close. Um, but you criticised, the, the, it seemed to me your criticisms early on of a lot of BBC journalism was that it wasn't sufficiently impartial. 
No, it was like you said, I get annoyed when I listen to the radio sometimes. I mean, I, you know, I, it wasn't necessary. You said more no, than no, that. No, you no. talked about a set of values which were implied were rather unquestioned and which needed to be questioned because <laughs> logically the result of not questioning those values is to produce something which is not impartial. Well, I might get annoyed with a particular interview in a particular a particular interviewer in a particular interview taking a particular stand that I think is the wrong approach of attack. I sometimes tear my hair out at that. I might even get annoyed without it being anything to do with impartiality with a particular interviewing style. But that doesn't mean I don't think. I might, get it, I might incidentally think that we breach the, the rules of impartiality that I outline, and I might get annoyed at that. But that doesn't mean I don't think it's worth striving for those so-called impartial values and trying to uphold something that is very distinct from what the newspapers do. I think it's a very good thing to do. Before we pick up uh, with the audience about what you think about that, is there any, we've, I, th I think we need to hear from somebody from the BBC who will give us the, the definition of impar impartiality that BBC journalists in particular are now working to. Anybody uh, short, who's just left or who's with the BBC care to give us that definition? Is Phil Harding around? I thought it was him. Yeah. Phil Harding down here. <laughs> He's um, out by about a prison for about two months. Uh, formerly... Uh, editor of the Today programme, and then controller of, I get it wrong, but English, the World Service, and editorial policy, and a range of other things. So, I was, so what's the definition? I was, I was briefly responsible for um, the BBC's policy on impartiality. I want to speak up for high-mindedness. Would um, you define? Would you just I will define have a go. It? Yeah, let me have a go. Um, it's about freedom from partiality. It's about being without bias. It's about being open-minded. And it's about having a due respect for the truth. Now, I always think those who uh, argue against impartiality then have to turn that on its head. So let's go, f you know, if we're against impartiality, let's go for a world where we're in favour of partiality, we're in favour of bias, we're in favour of being closed-minded, and we want due respect for falsity. So where, where do we stand from that? I right, think the right, arguments right, against hold on, it... I'll come back okay? to you, but that's right. provocative. Richard North, come back on that. Oh, dear me. Um... <laughs> Well, he's saying, well, basically, if you don't think you want to be impartial, you don't care about truth. No, it's not that. It's the difficulty, as Evan and Emily have said, of if you decide that if there was only one thing to say, what, if there was only one approach that you could adopt in a monopolistic situation, then what would it be? And the gentleman does it as best you can. But that is a, a, a poor description, in my view, of what BBC journalism is about, which strikes me as, compared to what I see around it, strikingly inept at getting beyond the trivial. No, we're not talking about this. Come on, he's just said that if you don't believe in impartiality, yeah. you don't believe in fairness, you don't believe in the truth. <laughs> well... Well, you haven't ducked a fight before, Richard. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not ducking this one. The, the, the difficulty is that it's, it is about bandwidth. I, I believe that in this flawed world in which no human intelligence knows enough to be trusted, it's like the old argument from Hayek about the market. Thank God we don't have to trust a state planner or one clever person because nobody's clever enough. So if you narrow band stuff and you say, but the BBC is, 
It is impartial enough to be totally cool. It will corral arguments with perfect integrity. It understands truthfulness with a unique burning single light. Then I agree, it is just possible that if you had to silence all the press and all broadcasters, you might choose the BBC as tolerably the only one, if you've got to have only one. But Richard, nobody's suggesting. Nobody's suggesting it's the only one. No, but my difficulty is... in the marketplace. He's saying that in the marketplace, you require something which claims to be impartial. He's also saying you need that because if you don't believe in impartiality, you don't. You don't believe in fairness and you don't believe in truth. But I do believe in fairness. I do believe in truth. A truthfulness which is a flawed human attempt at the truth in which is inbuilt by anybody intelligent and understanding that it will fail. I will not get the truth. You lot and us all in a bandwidth world of market and discussion and competition might get, and we have in my view because of the British press, got as close to it in the print world as we're likely to get. Bandwidth of variety is everything. And And what differentiates all the competing things that add up to more like a truthful enterprise is the partiality, frankly, of all the competing bodies. So that's an argument for the market, not directly responsible to what he's no, saying. I was but just say, the, argue, the argument against Phil, who I, I might say I have the utmost respect for, I, I, and if, if we were going to have anybody deciding truth, mm. truth to facts, Phil would be uh, in my top six. But I, I have to say, the problem... <laughs> top six. Qualified phrase. Qualified. Sorry, but, but the problem with what Phil said is the Daily Mail probably believe they're doing that as well. No. And, no. and, and what's more, well, it was well, deeply well, flawed. Well, I did think it was deeply flawed of you to pitch the BBC against the Mail when you could have pitched it against Hang On and had a harder battle, say, the FT. Oh, the Daily Express. I mean, you know, the the Express and the Mail adopt a particularly, particularly trivial argumentative stand. And and well to their heavyweightnesses, there are masses of organs. The the FT, I would say, is it it impartial? I would say it's very BBC-ish, isn't it? Yes, but they have no mandate to be. I'll come back to Emily in a moment. Phil, I interrupted you. Would like to proceed from your challenge, not accepted the challenge, basically. Well, yeah, a couple more things. Uh, I mean, I think Richard is implying that impartiality leads to a single approach. Um, If it's done badly, that can be the way. It actually should lead to a a multiplicity uh, of approaches, and that is certainly uh, um, what impartiality should be. Uh, it, It is also if it is done badly, stultifyingly dull. I mean, that leads to, on the one hand, on the other hand, type journalism, which I think would have Evan and probably everybody else in the theatre throwing things at their radio and television. But when it is done well, it can lead to courageous journalism. It can lead to journalism that does come to judgment. It can lead to extraordinarily good judgments. The last thing I want to say, uh, Roger, is I think it, it's not just about bandwidth. I think in the future impartiality for a public broadcaster, be it the BBC or someone else, actually becomes more important, not less important. Because in the future, the audience will be assailed by a whole number of channels uh, which will take a very partial view. And it will be possible for the consumer very easily to to lock themselves into what I would describe as an electronic echo chamber, Mm. where they will see and hear nothing back Mm. to them except their own views. And when we already live in a world in which the majority of 
viewers at one point to Fox News believed that weapons of mass destruction had been found in Iraq, then I think that is a very dangerous world, and I think you need some correctives to that. So that's why I believe impartiality becomes more important, not less important. Let me bell, just Yeah, well, there, there were two things actually. One of which is this sort of fallacy about the market, and you know, isn't it a great thing? Um, I've been looking at the declining graph of British newspaper sales for the last, you know, 15 years or so, and it was, you know, actually. Are more people reading? No. Are more people looking at the BBC web- website? You know, bastards. Yes. Um, <laughs> that, that actually, I think this idea that there is no market for impartiality is completely wrong. And actually, you know, one of the things the Guardian did when it relaunched itself uh, a couple of years ago in newspaper format um, was really sort of try to hammer home to the journalists that. Uh, there was room in the market for a paper which mm. told things as they were and that, in mm. fact, you will see there's a qualitative difference, mm. if you like. We, we still have the most kind of, you know, bonkers, opinionated uh, sort of comment pages and uh, we have a, a kind of a massive extension of that online. Um, but it is a market position to say, you know, we are trying to surface facts in as an honest and transparent way as we, we have. So that's, I think, sort of, it's a fallacy to say that, um, in fact, you know, kind of the robustness of, of, of different opinions. And just a kind of minor note on the Daily Mail, it's like that Evan's absolutely right that we quite often look at, you know, trusted brand surveys. And within sort of the, the, the British news media, you know, the three most trusted brands are BBC. Um, the Guardian and the Daily Mail, because obviously, kind of, you know, the, the people who people who read the Guardian really, really, really believe it to be, they trust it. And oddly, people who read the Daily Mail really trust it as well, because it's, you know, you're back into this kind of idea of, uh, you know, the, the people don't read the Daily Mail and think uh, broccoli gives you cancer. That must be wrong. They kind of think, oh my God, you know, I better not eat so much broccoli. Um, so, I think I, <laughs> I just sort of wanted to. to interject that about the market because it's not working I don't think it is working for, for impartiality So now we've got a model in which the only thing that's stopping becoming people running down rat holes of self-endorsing leftishness or rightishness is the BBC's beacon of impartiality so variety of opinion no we don't want that what we, what, or rather it is so dangerous to have varieties of opinion because people just go into self-referring things that we must have the BBC as somewhere you can cling to a single rope that you can free yourself from No one here has argued against partiality. We're all in favour of partiality, Richard. That's quite, quite wrong. We're all in favour of partiality, and no one here says the BBC has a monopoly on impartiality. You're confusing two quite separate arguments, one about the merits of impartiality, whether it exists, whether it's a thing that journalists can strive for, whether the BBC potentially delivers it, with a different argument. Should the BBC exist and is it all a bunch of left-wing right. thinkers? That's what we're, that is what we're going to discuss in the latter part a little later. A little later. But let's stick on this pursuit of impartiality because I still think I'd like to hear from you about whether you think it's... Everybody would agree you can't be perfectly impartial. Is it worth pursuing? Now, who would like to argue? Gentleman here. Yeah. Would you say who you are and, um, and address um, your yeah. question? You will take a Breton from uh, Roehampton University. Um, I think impartiality is a kind of re- relic of a more deferent past. I don't think we need impartiality because ultimately people have to make up their own minds. So we don't need to be broadcast the views that are available upon which to base our ideas. I don't think we need the BBC and the BBC are certainly the last organisation that we should use to have impartiality because of the pressure that that they can come under um, because of their relationship with the, the funding with the government. So it's the last place where you can 
guarantee any impartiality. And I would say people have to make up their own minds. They yeah. don't want to be fed the views upon which to make their decisions. Okay, if we could try and keep the BBC and its future a little bit later, just try and concentrate on the, whether the pursuit of impartiality is worthwhile. Live there, yeah? Yeah, my name is Nikki. I'm from London College of Communication. Um, my question would be, what if you don't get the balance through market competition? What if the newspapers and channels are not spread evenly over the political spectrum? And um, my other sort of question about leaving it all up to market forces would be, what do you do about the fact that people choose to stick with a newspaper or a channel and they won't look outside to find alternate views? So they're just, you know, the media will be sort of only perpetuating their worldview and you'll have different segments of society all sort of, um, you know, no one will sort of move on from their original thoughts. Okay, someone else, I'll put this question in a moment. Um, lady back there, yeah. I'm Antonia. I come from London South Bank University. Can you hear me? Yeah. I was wondering, is it much more a question of morality on your own judgment or impartiality? You know, your own moral values for human rights, racism, or to be impartial in the BBC, as you were saying, Mr. Davis, Ms. Dale was speaking about to let people have their own view. So is it much more a question of morality, personal morality, which can differ from a person to another, rather than, uh, let's say, an institutional regulation? Right. Okay, and one more gentleman there at the back. <coughs> oh, sorry, put, yeah, put your hand up here. Yeah. Sorry, and then we'll just try and address those, and if you think store up some more questions, I'll come back to you again after talking to the panel. Okay. Yeah, I'd be interested in hearing more uh, about s the specific techniques that one would, uh, as a practicing journalist, uh, talk about as being impartial techniques. Uh, you mentioned some of them, uh, Evan. Uh, but, you know, like, do you give two quotes to some person rather than, you know, one? Or who, who do you close with? Uh, how do you uh, title your story? What's the byline? Things like that. Because I think those end up uh, something subtle like do you uh, give point, counterpoint, and then you know a, a rebuttal? Uh, that that influences, I think, very much uh, how the article is perceived, and, and also is, is very much determined by uh, the, the partialities of, of the journalist. I think, uh, to, to some extent, um, there's within that decision, there's a, uh, an interpretation of what reality actually is, and I think that's unavoidable in any extent. But I, you know, I'd be interested in what the practices would be, the standardized practices, to try and uh, minimize um, the the personal uh, biases uh, if, if you are in, in favor of some aim of impartiality. Do you, this comes down to, in the end, two questions. Oh, sorry, I beg your pardon. Two of the things that comes down to Richard are, one, whether the market left alone will provide the range of opinions that are healthier in democracy, and secondly, even within that, when it comes to some issues as racism or hmm. sexuality, whether a degree of regulation uh, needs to be there. Let's set the BBC aside. Yeah, the well, then let's leave Will the market, yeah, deliver? Will no, the market no, deliver the no, sufficiently wide range of views? 
You wanted the market talked about later in a way because it's different to the BBC and I think there are lots of ways of making up for market failure that don't involve the state patronising us. So let's move that into the second part of the debate. If we come back to this problem that seems to have arisen where it sounds as though I don't care about truthfulness, what I more mean, I mean, I actually personally and all my career have been utterly dogged by a longing for and a passion to deliver that sounds pompous, but something close to that, robust, fair-mindedness. I have a passionate belief that if there is a distinctive feature in British thought, it is a passion for fair-mindedness. My point about it is it is to be found wherever you find Britishness. It is right through our media in different places within it. And I don't think... I disapprove of an institution... Actually, it's the whole of broadcasting. Having impartiality put on it for all kinds of reasons, but one of the reasons is that it's, that's to suggest it tends to imply that impartiality is to be found there, whereas actually what impresses me is that in the Telegraph, in the Guardian, in the FT, in the Economist, you find exactly that rigorous, robust, challenging fair-mindedness which is, the, for me, the spirit of this great culture. But is it? But we're not presumably just talking about British culture if we're in the LSC. We're talking in an international sense, presumably, and we must be interested in other cultures. Well, we can and talk you, about other cultures. You know, but you're implying that some unique Britishness is going to mean well, that we don't need intervention. But you talk also and accept that there can be market failure. If there is market failure here or mm. elsewhere in providing the range of opinion that properly reflect mm. society, and if there's a market failure in the establishing of facts, mm. you rule out entirely any form of intervention? Well, they're coming on to the second half of the discussion. Yes. I mean, in my view, there ought to be the, the British middle class, which is, let's say, 10 million literate, concerned, affluent people, could form a national trust of the airwaves, which could fund and fill the gaps in market failure as they perceive them to be when, they, when these market failures lob up, and I'm not going to predict where they will be, they will probably be around seriousness. I mean, there is a bit of a difficulty making money out of seriousness in the market, though even that is a complicated matter. There is a lot of seriousness provided by the market. But I, I don't think we need the state to patronise us in the provision of filling that market failure. And I certainly don't think that the guiding principle of such a national trust of the airwaves would be, as it were, impartiality. But if it the might be, fails, there's not enough left-wingery, we're going to fund it. But if the there's not enough fails, greenery, we're yeah. going to fund it. But if the market fails, and you know, the, comp the Competition Commission and so on is there to ensure that if the market does fail in terms of competition, something can be done about it, do you, do you not accept that if it's theoretically possible for the market to fail in terms of preventing, in presenting a sufficiently wide range of views. Mm. And if it does fail, what mechanism, if any, do you think should be used to correct it? Yeah, the great British middle class funding a national trust of the airwaves <coughs> in their typically busybody way that has saved a lot of national heritage and puts lifeboats in the ocean every day. The middle class, if they worry about the quality of their culture, can go out and buy the way of filling it and let, get the state out of it. Don't forget, I'm a free market ideologue. I don't like the state doing what voluntary activity or the market can do. But I don't know, I don't claim 
that advertising and subscriptions will do everything. I don't claim the market can do everything. I claim voluntary activity can. Well, there's an obvious collective action problem with uh, voluntary activity because uh, I might want a free ride on your fantastic... Yeah, well, that's... Uh, and, 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 and every day the lifeboats rescue people who are careless. Do it with PBS in the States. I mean, it's OK. I, I'm, I'm, I wouldn't want to rely on people chipping money in for voluntary... Uh, We're just confusing two debates here. One is whether, as a journalistic aspiration, impartiality is a good thing, and the other one is about the future of the BBC. On impartiality, it's bloody difficult, but I think when you really come down to it, you can see a difference between some of the people who don't see themselves as being able to take that last line and say, Mervyn King should resign, even though they may present a whole argument that points that way, giving due weight to Mervyn King's side of it. I think there is a difference between that and the, some of the ones you're talking about. I don't think the BBC has a monopoly on it, though. For God's sake, I think the FT, I would, I, I would mm. think the FT matches us for impartiality any day. I don't, obviously, the FT has a page <coughs> that doesn't match us for impartiality, but I don't think I would say we have a monopoly on it. And I, I, I'll be absolutely honest, I think the market would deliver impartiality. I don't think it might deliver, I don't think it would necessarily deliver it on the scale or quantity. But probably, if you wanted it, there would be a newspaper or a television programme that would deliver it. But well, how let's about separate the discussion about the journalistic aspiration, which I think is a complicated one, and the future of the BBC, which is, if you like, a slightly different one. And just to pick up Phil Harding's point about the danger of an echo chamber, do you think there is one? The echo chamber well, well, Essentially meaning that people will only read that which they already agree with and won't be challenged. Well, that's up to them. Point. I'm not going to stop them. You're not bothered about that? No, but I mean, I think there is a bit of a public... I think, it, you know, I think people appreciate having other views around. and uh, I mean, I think it's good if, if there's right-wing views, left-wing views, some in the middle who feel hands-tied, can't come up to a conclusion on mm. this, but nevertheless want to be... But I think it's mm. great that they're all there. I, I mean, the diversity is one that includes the impartiality. Everyone, Richard seems to be implying that we need to get rid of the impartiality because mm. it's pr- compressing out diversity. No, impartiality is part of a very diverse press, you know, a very diverse... Anybody else want to... Uh... Can we have gentlemen on that first row and I'll follow with, uh, well, you've had one question, so I'll take this one. And if you want to ask a question, can you keep your hand up so we know we can come to you next, yeah? Um, do you think that um, the BBC, considering the, uh, the sort of scale that it works within the media on the internet and, and in the television and everything, um, it sort of acts uh, quite differently to other news sources whereby it acts more as a sort of platform for um, other people to come on and uh, view their own partial views, and therefore that's uh, the reason why we have the BBC. I mean, no, I think it probably does less of that actually than, than anything else. I mean, the, the BBC's, you know, there is a very, there is a very strong sort of, you know, the web is a great place where you can kind of link out to stuff, and you know, you can point to things and you can surface opinions. You know, the, the, the BBC website doesn't do that at all. What the BBC website does is. Is, is trying to tell you what is going on in the world right now at any given point in a fairly sort of vanilla way, uh, which, you know, I, I, should it have, you know, should, should, it be, should it be a platform where everybody can air their views? I mean, that's, you know, again, very difficult to do without regulation. I think this comes back to the point about, you know, is, is impartiality safe in the free market? Well, I think we speak from a very privileged position where actually... You know, we have a free, we have a mixed economy of information in the UK. Uh, I think in the States there are clearly problems with, you know, an understanding of uh, it's difficult for people to make choices in terms of, you know, democratic process 
if all you watch is one particular kind of you know, outlook or, or set of facts, because you, you do believe that you know, Iraq uh, was in some way responsible for 9-11, um, because those facts are kind of conflated in so many ways that you, you, you're given a very misleading impression. So, you know, but I, I, I think, you know, is the, BBC, is the BBC's job to be a worldwide aggregator? No, I agree with Phil. I think that actually high-mindedness, high-mindedness is a good thing, not least to get journalists out of bed in the morning and make them think that actually there is a purpose to giving, to surfacing facts. You know, and the purpose of surfacing facts ultimately is to feed the democratic process. And my God, if you live somewhere where there isn't a democratic process or there isn't free press, you feel that very keenly. Capri now worldwide, fresh from judging Queengate, and they would now be called, I suppose, if you're still in the BBC, Director of Vision. You clearly had no vision when you were simply managing Director of Television and so on. Far away. Um, well, I'm, I'm with Richard North in, in one regard, in that while it's hard to sanctify any individual element of the printed media, the whole rumbustuous argument knockabout marketplace we've got in newspapers in this country, while not perfect, as perhaps as he seems to think it is, is one hell of a lot better than the alternative you find, I think, pretty well anywhere else on earth, and we're lucky to have it. But of course, the marketplace we're talking about is the marketplace in information. And Emily Bell referred to uh, trusted brands, but when the public are asked which sources of information they trust most. Always at the top are, is broadcast journalism. That's not just the BBC, BBC, ITV, and, um, and Channel 4 and so on. And way down is the, are the are newspapers, along with politicians and, and many other things, and which suggests that the public are perfectly capable of reading their daily newspaper and enjoying the argument, the confirmation of their worldview, the, the, frip, the frippery or the good information they're getting from it, while at the same time having high regard for a kind of journalism which seeks to be impartial overall. And that, when it comes to trust, is where they seem to be. In which, so what we're arguing about, should you take away the most trusted forms of journalism in this country for all their imperfections and leave people with just the least trusted forms of journalism. doesn't seem a very sensible argument to me. Richard? My answer, I think this is an answer to that point, and to Evan's point. I absolutely think that it is entirely possible when in the next ten years the BBC is scrapped, that something like the BBC News, let's say, resurfaces, brands itself as impartial, and is much loved. Um, if, in a way, if it... If, if that's a marketing thing and it delivers it, that's fine. Um, I have a problem of the, uh, my problem with impartiality is actually, and that's why I didn't bother to define, is, is, is not so much that I don't think it can be achieved, not so much that it's awful. It's that, A, it hasn't been necessary as the guiding principle of the rest of the media, but B, I don't think it's a good fig leaf by which you mandate the state funding of a single monopolistic organization. Um, so f for me, when I say let's scrap the BBC because it's unnecessary, because we can re replicate what we want of it voluntarily, um, I, I was forced then to address the impartiality argument because it was the main argument the BBC hoisted for the one thing that absolutely was... Its defining characteristic 
which obligated us all to fund it through the, the state. Now, actually, I would go the opposite way and say, in my more voluntary world, market, voluntary, whatever, some organisation, and it might well be the rump of the BBC, might well label itself impartial and might be much loved and attract much audience. Well, let's move on now to the second half of the question, the last half hour we've got, which I've held back, so it feels like a tide, really, of wishing you to get in this. Is, is, discussing the second half. Is, no, he told me to. He kept going to me. Is the public... <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, is the public service ethos doomed? Now, Evan, would you like to... Uh, argue uh, for that? I mean, Well, look, let, let's be absolutely clear. It isn't doomed now. Um, I don't want to prejudge how it all um, will pan out in 20 years' time, but it isn't doomed now. And I, I, I have a, a personal fear that broadcasters themselves may be uh, accelerating the process or anticipating the end of public service ethos before its time is up. The truth is, people like my mum and dad, they watch TV... <laughs> They expect it to be of a kind of BBC type of news. It, it's what they're used to, and they've got a few years of life in them yet, and uh, so do a lot of people of their generation who are going to go on consuming that way. So no, it isn't yet. In the future, when all these things begin to break out and television becomes like magazines, I think it is rather interesting, and I think it is, it is difficult to come to a judgment about whether the correct delivery mechanism for the kinds of things the BBC does is a mechanism that involves a nationalised, tax-funded um, <coughs> monopoly broadcast. But that's not the same as public service necessarily. The BBC so far has been, apparently, most people think, the best way of achieving a particular end. But you could still believe in the end yeah, and no, dispense right. with the means. You're quite right. You're so quite right. if you're we quite address right. the end... I shouldn't confuse the issue of public service with the BBC in the way we were confusing impartiality with the BBC. Yeah. No, you're quite right. Um, is the public service ethos dead? In the long term, I doubt it. If we're not attaching it to the BBC, I think it's very likely that some kind of BBC-esque, middle-class values, uh, tolerant, fair-minded, supposedly impartial, um, broadcaster that doesn't provide the conclusions but provides you the analysis to get to the conclusions, I suspect that will have a future in one form or another. Do you I think that, that it has a, it is the BBC that would be the form? And is that because, I mean, I don't like this use of middle class working, it's insulted no, to I mean, the working exactly class to ensure they're not interested in truth and freedom or all those things, but is it because in the end you feel that within the market there will be a sufficient demand for what we call public yeah, service I think will. I think that will. it will not require an intervention to achieve that, but the market will provide that? I, I personally think the market will probably provide that. It may not provide it to the public satisfaction. And this is why I think I'd say there's a public good element to public service ethos. But it may be that everybody can agree. It's kind of, I might agree that there's an externality in public service broadcasting because even though I don't like it very much, I really want you guys not just to be reading the Daily Mail for your news. So I'm willing to pay a bit of tax for you guys to have something other than the Daily Mail uh, that you will get your news from, because I think you will come to a better decision about who to vote for in the next election if you do that. So there is a subtle economic argument that says there are public good attributes, potentially public good attributes, to public service ethos and impartiality. And I think that it might be that the market will under-provide 
but I think the market will still provide. So my view is the market will provide public service ethos, it will have a future, it may not be the BBC, and the market may not provide quite as much as everybody agrees they would like. And how about you, Emily? Do you share that um, optimism that no matter how many cha channels are available, the demand will be there? Um, I don't doubt that demand will be there. I do worry, though, about equality of access to, um, and this goes back to decoupling public service from the BBC, that I think that there is something as well with the, which the BBC concentrates to, quite hard on, which is universality of access, which is uh, like impartiality, something that it, it should be striving for. Um, and what I see, again, as I say, I sort of started off kind of maybe six, seven, eight years ago, very much, you know, on the west coast of the States, uh, web hippie, I was never there, but just mentally I was there, uh, sort of web hippie, this is kind of for good, it can't be constrained, there's, there's nothing, you know, there's, there's nothing that sort of, there's nothing that regulation can improve about the web, it's the great platform for collective action. Um, I think that, you know, that what, what we see now, if you like, the, um, what we call, um, uh, what would Google do, uh, that you're seeing uh, really some sort of quite kind of substantial, not just local but multinational interests now who have uh, a great deal of say about how people consume or receive or interface with their information uh, and also who hold information on you. Uh, so I've rather kind of done 180 degrees from why we don't need intervention, we don't need regulation, to thinking that actually there's some really massive issues around access and privacy and freedom, which I think uh, very much are sort of, you know, embodied in, if you like, sort of the public service ethos. Now, whether the BBC is the best vehicle for that going forward, um, only if the BBC sort of sorts itself out of it and stops pointing in... Uh, the rather sort of bizarre sort of two directions it does at the moment, one of which is very much kind of, you know, we have to compete in the marketplace and be relevant to all people across all platforms, uh, and uh, as opposed to, you know, what is our, what is our central purpose and how are, d how are we delivering that? Um, so, you know, do I, think that, do I think that there is a market for... Um, do I think there's market for public services? Will people consume it? Yes, of course they will. You can see that every day. Uh, they're very keen on it. Um, will it work in, a work in a world completely free of intervention? I really doubt it. Richard, are you, are you arguing kind of for, for, for no intervention at all? Does, it, does it, it not worry you now that Rupert Murdoch owns so much and that when faced with a proposition, we believe, is coming out of the European community that might affect his businesses in Italy, he makes sure that his editors in London um, react appropriately in their attitude to the European community. I mean, when you, you don't worry about the market dominance of people like him or of people who own the Daily Mail, live outside this country, don't pay tax and lecture us about those things. None of this bothers you? No, not at all. I, I don't see anything to worry me about any of this. It's all fine and it's going to get better if uh, we can succeed in educating the people at the bottom of society who have seemed so far remarkably proof against education, if we can somehow get some ideas and some literacy into their heads, um, the rest will take care of itself. I mean, the only thing we have to fear is ignorant masses. Um, the elite will get information and be prepared to pay for it. Uh, with any luck at all, at least the masses will be clever enough to realize that if they've got an educated, well-informed, busybody, serious, committed elite, then everything's going to be fine, provided they don't themselves get too excited and meddle. 
But what I mean here is that PSBR, public service broadcasting, is, as it were, the broadcasting that, that most people don't want and which somehow they ought to want. And the curiosity at the moment, I mean, let's say at the moment, uh, don't forget that it's a requirement of all broadcasters, so far as I understand it, to do public service broadcasting. They're all equally shackled. Um, That's not true. They well, they're all, they're very nearly a shackle. No, they're a great, great range from the public service grants of Channel 5, say, BBC. Well, all right. But, but in which case, my case is even better made, because so far as I can see, ITV and Channel 5, will produce for the market, and you say with less regulation, news perfectly fit for purpose. And the more serious news will get produced and will get consumed and will get better, not worse, and it will get better when, for instance, people like the BBC, and I don't mean just the BBC, but the top end, feel less need to chase their market downwards for an anxiety they're not sufficiently popular and populist to justify a compulsory tax. In other words, I wouldn't mind at all seeing the more vulgar commercial news being perfectly adequate for, as it were, the masses. And I wouldn't mind at all watching a deliberately serious, much more challenging other sort of news coming um, at the top end. So I don't mind if this market bifurcates. But then don't forget, I have no... I don't believe that this culture is in trouble. I don't believe that right now it's in trouble. And I don't believe that it's likely to be in any more trouble as it gets more affluent and better educated. Okay, let's, we, we seem to have a, a consensus here, I think. Can I honestly say that? Well, a belief that it's quite possible that public service is not doomed for a variety of reasons, but a belief that the market may wish to produce or support a public service channel or a public service ethos that moves across. The key question will be funding, of course. Right, yeah. If you say who you're from, we've got uh, about 15 minutes left. Damien Tambini, London School of Economics. Um, I think I've entered some sort of time warp here. I'm in the 1920s and we're worried about the kind of cultivation of the, the masses and uh, we've kind of divided into this kind of patrician elite and, and then maybe some people in the background who might be scratching their head about um, maybe educating the masses. Um, um, I think yeah, there isn't quite a consensus. I disagree. I think Emily's comment that really we, the key thing we have to worry about is access, is the real one. Because yes, you can say that this, um, you know, I hesitate to, to pick up the language that the that there is a group of people who would support the uh, large investment required, for example, for quality news provision, is not the same as saying that that material would be available to many um, uh, of the people that we may worry about the education of. So the point about externalities, the point about the democratic role, is still as strong as ever. In fact, perhaps more strong, because the fact of the matter is that the... Um, purely leaving this to the market, the ability to slice and dice content, to target advertising, and to wrap it up with digital rights management to make it less accessible to people, is greatly increased. 
So the ability to exclude people is, is, is increased. So I think that the, the, the key market failure is really about access. Right, the gentleman behind you could talk to. The implication, Damien, there is you think that that was ultimately potentially damaging for society. afford the sandwiches and organic ice cream and simply never go. Oh, yeah. from LSE. Uh, just wanted to ask if you see public service moving from broadcasting to narrow casting and really addressing this question of access by getting into new media and rather than going into broadcasting and addressing the market masses where the market is already being addressed in more ways than one. Right. Okay, I'll try and pick that up at the moment and yes, Thanks. Um, yeah, I just want to question this. Maybe we should question this kind of polarisation between market on the one hand and public service on the other. Um, so I was at a discussion, I think it's Peter Horrocks was speaking a couple of weeks ago at Battle of Ideas. Head of BBC News. Thank you. Um, another BBC person. Um, basically, public service is a historical thing. It changes over time. And it's being redefined into something that is client-driven. So... And that's, that's from him. So he believes that public service is listening to what the people want. And, of course, we all know that the good thing about having journalists is that sometimes people don't know what they want and they can see something that opens their eyes. So, so I just want to make that point that you know, public service isn't independent from the market and it is changing through time. And what do we think about what's happening to it? Emily, can I pick up? I think what the gentleman means there is that we tend to talk about public services being the BBC. We could mean an ethos which informs most, if not all, the media in this country. No, no, absolutely. As I say, I I, I think that the BBC, you know, if if the public service ethos was shackled to the BBC as it's currently constituted, definitely it's doomed. I think that. Um, you know, your point about it, is, it all, is it all about access and is it actually about a completely different definition and is it about, not, not about the one-to-many model but the, the one-to-one model. I think that's right. If you had to reimagine now that there was, there was no such thing as a kind of a state broadcaster or, 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 or a publicly funded public service broadcaster because it's not a state broadcaster, um, you would say, well, what is it that, you know, what, what, what would the greatest thing be? And it would probably be a non-commercial search engine. You know, it would, the BBC today would probably be a non-commercial, multi-media search engine where, uh, you know, people could attribute sort of, if you like, kind of, it would be kind of peer-rated, etc. So you could find everything you wanted. And sometimes it would push stuff towards you and sometimes you could, sometimes you could pull it out. It would be something completely different to how it is now. And I think that that's, you know, that's, that's the key thing, that actually you know, the BBC is at the moment British and it's a broadcaster and perhaps in kind of 10 years time if it's going to have a future it will be neither of those things okay, Evan can I bring you in on here just narrow it down to news because I think the evidence but correct me you know better than I do of the last 5 or 6 years is that it's difficult if not important, impossible to commercially fund news and make it pay ITN tried to run a 24 hour channel failed Sky news figures are so low, they're only effectively subsidised and supported, you would mm. think, for PR, for political reasons, by Sky. Mm. The sort of investment you put into news, if you are trying to report from abroad, 
and you're trying also to provide your own pictures, not except the Americans or anybody else who happens to be there, and you're trying to validate things on the ground. That probably requires some sort of subsidy, doesn't it? It needn't necessarily be the BBC well, for a no, license fee. I don't know I actually agree with that. I mean, I think it is possible that ITN would have found it more profitable if there wasn't a tax finance competitor that was, hmm. that was taking up most of the, most of the relevant market. So I, it's, it's hard to know. Uh, we do observe that you can have news financed by other ways than, uh, than, than a tax. And I, I, mean, I think probably people like my parents would end up paying some subscription for a news channel if it wasn't available uh, via free view, paid for through the license fee. So I'm not sure I agree that news isn't financeable. Well, what, so perhaps, I just, sorry, sorry, I should perhaps narrow it down a little. I beg your Peter, interrupting. But a news with a very significant foreign right. element. Well, so, yeah, well if you have a very significant foreign element, I, I mean, I, 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 I don't think you would have as much news if you didn't finance it through the no, BBC. I think there would be a, a, there would be a significant reduction, but I don't think there would be zero. I mean, I think it... And then the argument, I think, is about whether the market would come up with enough or even a correct amount, given the public's preferences for money and for news and for a commonality of uh, you know, diversity of opinions being expressed. The, the question is whether the market would come up with enough. I'm a little agnostic on it, but I suspect the market wouldn't come up with quite enough. I think people would actually. But like definitely more coming yeah, I, I, I think I think we, you know, so we, we, we under, we've got a poor understanding of what's going to happen to the cost of that sort of news yeah. gathering and surfacing, which is that uh, it is coming down very, 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 very rapidly to the point that you know you can have uh, much more fully reported foreign stories like the Tibetan. Uh, Democracy uprising a few weeks ago, uh, which is which is which is basically you know done from an aggregation of a lot of sources within the country at a much faster rate than it was when there was a, the last mm. serious uprising 20 years ago, which mm. emerged over months. Mm. Uh, I heard a, a guy talking the other day about the new African News Service, which claimed to have a budget of 25 million dollars over five years. That's $5 million mm. a year for a pan-African news service. Now, you know, he was saying, well, we, we kind of put things on laptops, we cut, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We put some films up last week from Gaza, which was I commissioned them for the web. Uh, Maggie O'Kane, who kind of does stuff, uh, she's a great sort of foreign reporter who runs our film unit, um, worked with a young reporter to get the films out of there. They were sort of two to three minutes each. They weren't, you know, as cheap as getting somebody kind of to, to, to write it down, but they were a fraction of the cost of what they would have been kind of four or five years ago. And as I say, you know, actually aggregating the stories that people have to tell on the ground. Mm. How do you authenticate that? Well, you know, again, if everybody, if, if, you, if you've got these democratised mm. ways to surface fact, mm. then, you know, if somebody is not telling the truth, you know, if five people are telling the truth and one, per, one person's lying, it's kind of, you know, it's going to even itself out. And but will impartiality be preserved within that? Because we know, remember in the past, you know, um, sorry to go back to uh, the Dirty Digger, uh, but because of a book contract and so on, he, um, and he didn't want to offend China. At a particular moment, he was trying to invest in China. Certain book contracts got killed. That, we heard about Google. That's doing similar things. We know about some of, the, yeah. uh, some of these new services funded from the Middle East, that they do anything, everything, but, and everything but report upon the political structure of the country from which they broadcast. So can you sustain but, impartiality in this Well, this is, but this, is why it's, this is why the access key question is absolutely key. If you don't have, for instance, net neutrality, it becomes incredibly expensive and difficult for individuals to upload and send kind of data-rich files around the web, you know, but I mean, I think, 
we're a long way from that at the moment, but if one can imagine a world where, uh, you know, the vested interest of telecoms operators means that, you know, I couldn't send a video to you or I couldn't send a video to the rest of the world without it kind of really sort of costing me a lot of money. Then, then I think you have a fundamental problem at the moment. You know, the web is kind of, you know, in, still in this sort of slightly rosy sort of world of, uh, it, it, I don't think we've fully seen where the access arguments are going um, from either an infrastructure or, or, or a kind of control point, point of view. So, you know, there are too, there are too many unknowables, but I think that the, the issue is, is so far away from preserving uh, the current model of what we have of linear news broadcasting. News has showed this, you know, the web doesn't have any dead airtime, you know, so costs mm. will but change dramatically. But, e but e even to, to, en to enriching Emily's point, but absolutely sticking with it, is from wire to web is a lot more efficient than anything we've got on television. So we've got Reuters, we've got PA, uh, we've got stacks of uh, honest, intelligent, thoughtful, impartial, worried, professional uh, channels of information. You don't agree with impartiality. No, you've turned around in the course of an hour. He does agree with impartiality. He doesn't agree with the BBC. I mean, that is the argument. No, I don't believe. Sorry, I've said if you want to go on making. I've moved on. I hope you have on that. You now believe in impartiality. I'm sorry, I never said other than that I love it. What I said was that it was a stupid label to stick on an organization and hope that somehow that would sanctify that organization when actually those organizations that didn't bother with that label were just as good at delivering the bloody stuff. That this, was said, the point. You said impartiality was useless for journalists, but let's yes, carry on. Well, anyway. I did make a note. No, but the, so I'm conflicted. But my point, my point is that there isn't a God-given right to have pictures with every story in nice, full-on quality HD sodding video and George Allagaya looking incredibly pretty in his anorak in front of every crisis. That isn't a God-given right. It doesn't constitute news. It isn't the fact. The facts are just as much in Reuters, they're just as much in PA, they're just as much in the web, they're just as much in the Telegraph. And George Allagaya, or the television news cameraman, is not required for news. If BBC News, if television news stopped right now, news would not. People being informed would not stop. All these things would go on. We're blinded by the sense that somehow... If we didn't have television news, we would know less. But this actually isn't really true. We, what would really be worrying would be if Reuters, PA, The Telegraph, the FT and all the others stopped. Then we would not know enough about our world. If television stopped its reporting, actually all we would not have is lazy ways of learning stuff. Right, well, that's another subject. Let me just... I'm sorry, it goes to whether or not public service broadcasting is something that really, really matters. So are you in the end, because we're about three or four minutes left, and uh, there's a certain person going to be on the 10 o'clock news, the BBC tonight, so if you get home, you'll be able to watch him doing overtime. Let's just see, is the public service ethos doomed? Do you clearly believe the BBC is? I'm sorry, I think... Yes. Is the BBC... Is... I think the, I'm sorry, I think regulation of broadcasting is doomed and so is special funding of it doomed. State involvement in broadcasting is doomed. All these other things are subsets of those large propositions. Okay, Emily, your summary is public service ethos doomed? No, absolutely not. 
But, but it's the, not tied to linear broadcasting in and, any form. And the BBC may be, but that may not the be BBC may be. It depends on how quickly it can reorganise. It's, like it's like every time I bet against Rupert Murdoch, I'm wrong. Every time I bet against the BBC, I'm wrong. So <laughs> I think, you know, they will, they will reinvent themselves. Okay. And uh, Evan Davis, is the uh, public service ethos doomed? Um, I, I don't think it is, actually. And I don't think it is for the very reasons that Richard has so articulately put, which is that people want them and there's a tradition of them and there's no sign that people won't want them. Uh, and for the moment, we have a very good way of providing them through a licence fee funded BBC. Whether that will go on being the best way of providing them, who knows? But uh, I'm quite sure there will be something at the end of it. The economics of the industry are such that agencies like Reuters, I'm sure, will go on providing stuff. The economics of Reuters will require that they provide stuff for both the Guardian and the Mail, and consequently they won't spin it or you know, doctor it before it gets to the Guardian and the Mail. And I'm quite sure there will be a great diversity of views. But you know, I think there's a lot of change that could and maybe should occur over the next 25 years. I wouldn't accelerate that change right now because we haven't got to 25 years yet. Just take it step by step as we go along. And finally, Evan, when we watch your report on the BBC 10 o'clock news tonight, uh, will you be impartial? <laughs> I, um, I will stick to the seven or eight principles I announced earlier about, uh, <laughs> about being fair to both sides of an argument. If there are two sides. Right, uh, Evan Davis, Emily Bell, Richard D. North, thank you very much. Thank you.